0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. So for our hot question of the day today, it really is one of these moral and ethical dilemmas, like a what would you do question. These are my favorite kind. Now, I know the saying is, a fool and his money are soon parted. That kind of applies in this case. It's the story from Michigan where there was a driver who had, and I don't know why, but he had $30,000 in cash in a box on the bumper of his truck. Of course he drove off, and of course the cash blew onto the roadside, meaning a lot of other drivers noticed there was all this money flying around, so they pulled over and they took well, quite a bit of that cash actually for themselves. Authorities, it didn't take long for authorities to show up. They collected some of the money. Uh, Let's see here. How much did they actually collect? Well, they gathered about $2,500. Good Samaritans turned in another $4,500. But I think you can do the math on that and know that the vast majority of this $30,000 is still out there. So now authorities are asking them to please hand over the money so it can be returned to its owner. Juliet Dragos from ABC affiliate WZZM has more details.
1: $30,000 in cash was in a cardboard box when it fell off the back of a truck in Grand Haven. Loose bills were blowing in the wind along US 31 south of Coho Drive last night around 9 o'clock. Officers and witnesses collected $2,400 from the road. The owner told police he accidentally left the box on top of the bumper and drove off. We went to Grand Haven tonight and we didn't find any money, but people are still talking about what they would do if they found part of that 30 grand.
2: I'd probably return it. Yeah, my conscience
0: would get the best of me.
1: Now, police say they have picked up all of the remaining loose money and they're asking treasure hunters not to stop or walk in the traffic lanes.
0: Right. Good luck with that because that's not going to happen. If people see money blowing around, they are going to stop and they are going to check it out. So for our hot question of the day today, we're asking you about this story. The driver left $30,000 in cash in a box on his truck's bumper. He drove off. Cash blows onto the roadside. Many drivers stopped to take the cash. And now they're asking people to return it. So for you, I'm asking you, if you found some or a good chunk of this $30,000, would you keep it? Would you report it? What would you do? So here are your choices. You would keep it all, you'd keep some of it, or you would report it to the police. This is a, we are asking you to be honest here really for sure, if this was found money, what would you do with it? You can email me, simi at cknw.com, but cast your vote on our hot question of the day. If you go online, you will see it at simi, Sarah, 980. You'll also see it at CKNW. And you know what? Nobody's looking when you cast this vote. So be as honest as you can be. You can also use our buzz line on this, 604-331-BUZZ, 331 And I think for a lot of us, we go back to that moment When maybe somebody did something nice for you. Maybe you lost something. You lost some money. You dropped, you know, 20 bucks and somebody tapped you on the shoulder and said, here you go. I think we had a story about that uh, not that long ago where somebody, oh yeah, it was the coach, Doc Rivers, coach of the LA Clippers, right? Dropped a couple thousand dollars out of his pocket. Somebody tapped him on the shoulder and said, oh, you dropped this. And Doc Rivers hadn't even noticed. There's good people out there in the world. And then there's people who go, you know what? Nobody's going to know. I'm just going to keep this for myself. Which one are you? let us know. Use our hot question of the day poll there and vote. You can email me as well, send me at cknw.com. Would you keep it or would you report it to police? The votes, I've got dozens already on this thing that are coming in pretty fast. And I'll tell you, 24% of people are saying right now they'd keep it all. So that's honesty for you. 68% say they'd report it to the police and 8% are saying, oh, they'd keep some of it. Which one are you? Simi at cknw.com or cast your vote online. Simi, Sarah, 980 or at cknw. Pretty significant decision at Vancouver City Council yesterday. Vancouver businesses have been saying they're being squeezed, right, by the city's high real estate prices and they wanted some relief from City Hall. So what happened last night at Council is that by a decision that was close, so it was only a one vote difference, they voted to shift 2% of the tax burden from businesses onto Residential homeowners. And that came after city staff recommended against doing this. They said that homeowners already face enough of a property tax burden. So we're going to break all of this down here for you right now. Uh, Patricia Barnes is the executive director of the Hastings North Business Improvement Association. She said the tax shift is desperately needed with businesses on the brink of closure.
1: Yes, the 2% shift is important. We are in a crisis situation. Yes, my businesses need help. And yes, a change in this 2% would be a signal to our businesses that this administration will listen to them, will hear that small business is in trouble and actually want to do something about it. The importance of the 2% shift today is about signaling signaling to our business community that they matter. Signaling to my... um, stores that they matter, telling my my particular store owner who's in the process of going bankrupt that she matters, this isn't going to go ahead quick enough to help her. She's been struggling for the last five years trying to keep it going. She has poured her heart and soul into it. She is now facing personal bankruptcy in trying to maintain a small business in the city of Vancouver.
0: This is not what we want to be doing. That is Patricia Barnes, the Executive Director of the Hastings North Business Improvement Association. I have a lot of questions about this too. Like, why not a program that created tax breaks for small business owners who were local instead of rewarding even the big chains as well? Because that's one of the criticisms of this shift, meaning big, huge companies like Starbucks, Walmart, like you name it, they're also going to benefit from this. Whereas what we want to see rewarded are those local small business owners now, Vancouver City Councilor Rebecca Bly voted in favour of the motion. She joined the CKNW John McComb show this morning to explain why.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that the it comes down to equity, John. It, people are quite surprised to understand how the actual tax levy um, uh, breakdown works. And so um, when we look at uh, the amount of businesses or properties that are commercial properties in Vancouver, um that That accounts for about seven percent as opposed to ninety three percent residential. And yet those commercial businesses carry forty five percent of the tax levy. And so really, I think it comes down to equity. We have uh, a hollowing out of our uh, local small business. We hear we've heard from people for for years, as as you say, um, that they need a break, and they need to know that their local government wants them to stick around.
0: That is Vancouver City Councilor Rebecca Bly. So who voted for this? Well, Rebecca Bly did. Also, Councillors Lisa Dominato, Sarah Kirby Young, Pete Fry, Adrian Carr, and Michael Wiebe. Against this, Mayor Kennedy Stewart, Councillors Melissa DiGenova, Colleen Hardwick, Jean Swanson, and Christine Boyle. And what it means for residents is that that 4.5% increase that we were going to get for 2019... Uh, Thou means you'll be getting a 6.1% increase after that meeting. And the kicker here is as well, as I was pouring through the City of Vancouver's budget documents this morning, uh, they're reporting a surplus for last year and for this year, expected to. In fact, $114 million surplus is forecast for 2019. So yeah, lots of questions to me about, well, what could they have cut to offer this relief to small business owners without just shifting the burden onto residential uh, homeowners. But we're going to talk about this as a policy shift here as well with the help of our next guest, Tom Davidoff, economics professor at UBC's Sauder School of Business. Hi, Tom.
4: Hi there. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, what did you think about this?
4: Well, I think it was a good idea. I mean, and basically, as I understand it, uh, I may be off by a bit, but, but, but just looking online, I think if you're a landlord, an owner of a property and you decide to build a commercial property, uh, the city's going to tax you at something like 1% of value, you know, city and province all in. And if you decide to build residential, you're going to be at about a quarter percent. So the government is saying, we don't want business, we want residential. And, you know, typically what we would do is allow the market to decide whether we want more uh, business or, or whether we want more residential use of real estate. So I think getting a little bit closer, and really not close at all, but like a baby step closer uh, to equalization of rates is a good idea.
0: Right. Okay. What does this do, though, for the affordability question? Because that's been brought up here as well. That if land, like like if people who own these homes that are rentals as well, they're going to be charged more. Aren't they just going to shift that onto renters?
4: No, I don't think so. Uh, The reason is uh, obviously. People really want condos in Vancouver, you know, a lot of the time to rent them out. Uh, The price of a condo is far, far greater uh, than the cost of construction. So even if you increase the taxes, uh, that's going to make people willing to pay a little bit less, but uh, there'll still be demand to build them. Mostly it'll come out of land value. You'll get a little bit less construction, but most of the impact would be a reduction of land value, which gets eaten by uh, current owners. And uh, you can only pass through to tenants if you build a lot less space or if demand grows. Obviously, people wanting to rent homes in Vancouver don't care what property tax their landlord pays. Uh, And so unless you thought people would stop wanting to build condos and rental buildings uh, because property taxes go up a bit, uh, you're not going to see much of an impact on rents.
0: Is there a better way to do this, though, do you think? Uh,
4: You know, I think... One issue that has not been addressed that I think government could get creative about is this issue of uncertainty where all of a sudden a landlord gets hit with a much higher assessment, and because of the way leases are written, uh, that higher assessment gets passed through to a tenant, and some of those are the mom-and-pop shops you've been talking about who just can't pay Mm -hmm. uh, the increased commercial tax, so... Over time, I think the reaction of the market is going to have to be uh, leases are going to be not uh, so-called triple net, not entirely passing through property tax increases to tenants, because if this is a serious problem, then we'd see a lot of vacant space and tenants would say, I can't sign a lease where I'm responsible for large increases in property taxes. So with... Uh, The leasing legal and uh, retail landlord and operating community, I think the city might start to think and uh, the province might start to think about getting creative uh, about ways of avoiding those shocks and about uh, writing leases in a smarter way.
0: Right. Is the vacancy rate a tough one for businesses right now?
4: I don't think so. I think the retail market is uh, fairly healthy. Uh, ultimately, you know, if you ask one of these tenants who got bounced out of a space because they can't afford to make the the lease payments, uh, well, why don't you go to another landlord? They say I, I have heard, well, it's hard to get, it's hard to compete for space. So I think part of the problem we have is, uh, too many people wanting to do business in not enough spaces. And again, part of that problem would be that the city, uh, provides an incentive, uh, not to build commercial space with distorted rates between residential and commercial.
0: Right. Now you've often said though, as well, that you believe we, our property taxes here are pretty low.
4: Yeah, and this would have to be integrated with the province. I mean, overall Vancouver can raise property taxes, but some of that gets kicked up to the province. What should happen, of course. I mean, think about a 2 million dollar house, right? You need at least, I don't know, 200k in income to buy that house. And what are the income taxes on $200,000 something like 60k a year, whereas that 2 million dollar property would pay about $6,000 a year in property taxes. So 10 times the income tax rate uh, as the uh, property tax rate. Why? You know, why is it so bad to work for a living, but so great to buy a property, Uh, especially in a market like Vancouver, where we're challenged to add supply? No. I think, uh, generally speaking, we should be raising property taxes uh, across the board, particularly on residential, but that can only really work if the province steps in and lowers other taxes like income and sales tax in greater Vancouver.
0: Because that's the key here as well, right, is that people are going to look at this and all they're going to see is that, hey, my property taxes are going up.
4: Yeah, what's the benefit? You're not going to see a big impact on vacancies. As I say, I think most of the problem of retailers going out of business is the retail sector generally has been suffering with the dawn of the Internet. uh, And there may be a shortage of space in the city. So people are going to see... Uh, A a very small increase in their property taxes. They may not perceive it. But if they read the newspaper, I think they may reasonably say, wait a second, I'm paying more property tax. uh, And what what exactly am I getting for it? Uh, You know, my commercial property owner down the block gets to pay less tax. Politically, that may not be much of a winner. And that may be why we saw a split council.
0: Certainly the case. Tom, thanks so much for talking to us about this.
4: Oh, real pleasure. Very interesting topic. Thank you.
0: It is. Thank you. That is Tom Davidoff, an economics professor at UBC's Sauter School of Business. Now, right across Canada, we are pretty good recyclers, right? I mean, I think, what was the stat I said yesterday? Something like 93% of Canadians have access to at least one recycling program. And really the truth is we have access to probably more than one. And we do it because it makes us feel good about all this stuff that we're always using in our homes. This idea that, oh, it's okay, it's being recycled. So you probably don't think of it as a business, but that is exactly what it is. The reason why we have all these programs is that that product is exactly that a product it was being sold. The goal is to sell almost everything that we put in our blue bin or your yellow bag, whatever the case may be. There has been a price for paper, cardboard, different types of plastic and glass. And for years we were sending a lot of this material overseas to other countries and it was being processed there. But about 13, 14 months ago, China decided that they had enough of their own recycling. They can't take stuff from other countries, so they were closing the doors on that. And now other Asian countries are doing the same. That means the business model is collapsing. You're still, I'm still, we are all still putting stuff in our blue bin and bags, but now it's being stockpiled because it's not actually or necessarily being processed, Uh, Some cities are losing millions of dollars on their recycling programs. So there's this whole uh, move towards rethinking the economics of recycling. So what does that mean for where our recyclables end up? And how are our municipalities making money from the goods that we are putting in those blue bins and boxes? To talk more about this, we're joined now by Maria Kelleher, who is a principal at Kelleher Environmental in Toronto. Maria, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Are we reaching a real tipping point here with these recycling programs in Canada?
1: Well, it all depends what you mean by tipping point. I mean, we're making less money on the revenue side than we used to, but uh, we're still making a bit of money. And a lot of things are cyclic. We didn't use to send our, our material to China, that only started maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and China had warned us they were going to do this. So in 2013, China said, we're putting up a green fence. It was called China's green fence, and we're getting a bit more picky about the materials we take from you. And that forced people to clean their act up a bit. And then in 2018, they just said, "We're done." You know, China's sword. You have to. You can only send us extremely clean materials. So, as you mentioned, by then they had developed their own domestic supply of materials. They didn't really need our materials anymore. The reason they were willing to take it was because they were short of materials for their own production processes. So they really needed our material, but now they really don't need it anymore. So yeah, we need to completely rethink how we do things. It doesn't mean we shouldn't recycle. It just means we need to develop um, domestic markets that will probably pay us a bit less, but we will still make some money on the revenue side. But, uh, you know, recycling always costs money or um, it costs money for most things.
0: Right. So is, are we having to rethink this then? Like, how do we change our programs and how is that going to infect affect those people, like the homeowners, who are putting all their stuff in their blue bins?
1: Well, first of all, the stuff we put in the blue bin is completely different to what it was five years ago. Yeah. So there's about four different things happening You know, we have a lot less newspapers because people don't read paper newspapers. We have a lot more takeout packaging because people like takeout food more than they used to. People like to snack and there's all these little snack packs in in our blue bin. And all of that makes it harder to produce really clean material. Um, But that's just, you know, our lifestyles are changing. We're, um, We're ordering much more stuff online. So it gets delivered in cardboard boxes. We didn't have that five or ten years ago. So everything's changing. And then China is saying, no more. And so everything's changing all at the same time. So like any business, you have to sit down and think, well, what am I going to do about this? And, you know, redesign all your business processes to deal with the reality that we have in 2019.
0: Are we doing that, though? Are we redesigning those processes?
1: Well, slowly. But, you know, technology takes a few years to catch up with what's happening. So... On the recycling side, we've got better optical sorters now than we used to have. They're getting better and better all the time. But the key with recycling is to make really clean material because um, markets get fussier and fussier about the cleanliness and contamination if they can afford to be fussy, which, of course, they can afford to be fussy now because they've got loads of material that we're all trying to sell. And so the guy with the cleanest material will get the... We'll get the sales. So the key is to make your material really high quality and really clean. Um, and that's uh, something we haven't had to really do for a while. So, yeah. It- yeah. So the machinery will catch up, but it always is a lag usually of two or three years before designers can come up with something that'll deal with what we're dealing with now.
0: So when you talk about the materials being clean, is that then the onus on us, the ones who are, you know, produce, like providing all of this product? Like, we have to make sure it's cleaner when we put it in our bins.
1: Absolutely. And that's, uh, <clears throat> that's a real problem at the moment because people get confused about what goes in the bin. And one of the things we're having a problem with now is aspirational recycling, or we call it wish cycling, where... Someone says, is this tub, you know, recyclable or not recyclable? Oh, I'm not sure. I'll just throw it in the bin. And so what we're saying now, we used to say, put it all in and we'll sort it out. Now we're saying, no, don't do that. Like, only put in what you're sure about. And the rest really, I know it goes against uh, the way we think now, but the rest is really better off in the garbage because it keeps the recycling cleaner.
0: But it sounds like we need to rethink as to how we approach this whole process.
1: Completely. We need a complete rethink because the world around us has changed very quickly and so we need to be fairly swift on our feet and redesign and rethink, not cancel recycling programs, just modify them a bit to make sense in uh, with the materials that we have right now and who we're able to sell them to, what money we can get for them, but Recycling, you know, curbside recycling never really made money. It's just it's uh, where I live um, in Ontario, it's, it's the law. It's mandatory. We all have to recycle if we live in communities of a certain size. So there's no option. You have to do it. Um, and that's the case in a few other provinces across the country. So if you have to do it, you have to make it as economical as you can. Um, And people are working extremely hard right now trying to think this all through.
0: Right. It just seems that for so long, we just assume just throw it in the bin and it's going to get recycled. But now if it's more work, are we concerned that maybe not as many people will recycle?
1: I think people will recycle because it, it helps them expiate their guilt for being consumers. So. I mean, people are very conscious of overpackaged materials, and they're very conscientious about trying to limit how much packaging they buy. but um people want to recycle, so I think it's it's with us now it's a it's a social norm. it's the way we live and the way we behave. Um, it's just slowly beginning to cost a lot more money, and I know a lot of communities are saying, Oh, it cost us you know the new contract was twice what the old contract was." Well, that's just business catching up. You know, the old contract might have been five or seven years old and everything was different then. So when they rebid, they have to put the price up to reflect what's going on today.
0: You sound very optimistic about this, though, because there has been a lot of people going, well, well, this sounds terrible. We're We're not doing this the way we thought we were going to be doing this. But you sound optimistic about it.
5: Yeah, because I've seen these
1: cycles before, you know, you you get hit by something you weren't expecting and you have to regroup, you have to say, okay, we weren't really expecting this to happen, but it's here now and it's here to stay and we just have to adjust, it's like any business process, you know, something new comes at you, you need to uh, quickly adjust or uh, you'll just be losing money, so... Um, I do, you know, in Europe, for instance, where people simply have to recycle packaging under the EU packaging directive, big companies with lots of expertise are coming up with new designs of equipment that, that we will buy from them or else invent them ourselves. So I do feel positive that, yes, people will figure it out. But they, it always there's always a little bit of time when it, it, people, it takes a while for people to adjust and come up with a new idea but everybody's working on it. So I do feel positive, yeah.
0: Okay, good. Maria, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Bye-bye. That was Maria Kelleher, principal at Kelleher Environmental in Toronto. All right, let's take a look at what's happening in Japan today, because there really is a remarkable scene unfolding there. The emperor of Japan, Emperor Akihito, has handed over the throne to Crown Prince Naruhito. Akihito's era is the first in Japan's modern history to end without a war. It is in free of war. He took over from his father, who was Emperor Hirohito, Hirohito, who oversaw like what happened in the Second World War and all of that. So Akihito has been on the throne now for 30 plus years. He says he prays for peace and happiness for all the people in Japan and around the world. It's been such a memorable occasion in Japan. This hasn't happened for, you know, 200 years where an emperor has abdicated and handed over the throne. Uh, And so there's a 10-day holiday as well for the entire country to mark this momentous occasion. Elizabeth Palmer from CBS News reports from Tokyo on a memorable day in that country.
6: To mark the occasion, the entire country is enjoying Golden Week, which is in fact ten whole days of national holiday. Here in Tokyo, people are gathering outside the imperial palace where this hugely respected emperor is saying his final goodbyes. In a short ceremony, Akihito thanked the people who'd supported him and said he was fortunate to have served. So what does an emperor do in retirement? Well, one of Akihito's passions is marine biology. He says he's going to continue studying fish while his wife says she's just gonna catch up with her reading. I'm Elizabeth Palmer in Tokyo.
0: That sounds very relaxed, doesn't it? But it certainly hasn't been that way. There's so many fascinating things about the royal family in Japan. And so just before we came on air today, I managed to speak with Patricia Treble. She has been keeping a close eye on all things royalty from different countries, and she writes for McLean's, among other uh, organizations, for the past 20 years. And here's what she told us. Well, Patricia, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about this. I find this story fascinating. Why is it so significant, what's happening in Japan?
3: Well, I think the two things. The first of all is that it's the first abdication in more than 200 years. Um, and Emperor Akihito had been on the throne for three decades and had really had wanted to step down. His health has been declining in recent years, um, but it was not easy. Um, so, in 2016, he had to he had to do an incredibly rare address to the nation. And this is a man who does not speak regularly. Um, the monarchy in uh, in Japan is, is different from the monarchy here. Um, it's, a very, it's a very formal monarchy. And he, when he spoke to the nation, he, he basically laid out the cause that he was worried his health would continue to decline. He's had some heart issues, he's had prostate cancer, and he went up, he didn't quite say the word abdication, that would be a step too far, but he made it clear there needed to be a change. And it still took three years for this day to come And, you know, today, April 30th, is the day that he is officially stepping down. And tomorrow will be the transfer to his elder son, uh, Naruhito, who will become emperor. And the second thing is also that it is, it exposes really the fragility of the Chrysanthemum uh, throne, which in that is a male-only throne. Right. So... Naruhito has a daughter, only a daughter. She, cannot, she is not in line of su- succession. There are only two young people in line of succession Naruhito's brother and 12 year old nephew, and that is
0: it. Do you think that might change, though, as a result? Because it seems like it's getting a lot of discussion now.
3: I think it's getting a lot of discussion. There was a lot of discussion before, before the birth of um, his nephew, uh, Hisahito, who is now 12 years old. And there was talk of changing it, and that kind of died away. The Conservative Guard within Japan does not want that change, but I think it is becoming something that they're going to have to talk about, because what you're seeing really is women are increasingly, they want equality. Um, it is one of the most unequal Western industrialized nations out there. Um, and so I think this might, this might start the discussion going. Um, what will happen? I don't know. Um, the Imperial family stays well away from politics, um, so it's simply it's I think it's something they probably would like, but you will never have them talking about it.
0: Right. It's interesting though that like female members of the royal family, they lose their place in the royal family, right? If they marry outside yep. of royalty, exactly,
3: they completely lose their place. Um, and so this is, and so what's been happening is simply Akihito has has you know four granddaughters. Um, and the minute they marry, they're gone. Um, and wow. so what's happening is the royal family is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So you're became, it's becoming very fragile. I mean, so if anything goes wrong, there's simply no... And that wasn't always the case. I mean, there have been female empresses in the past, Um but certainly within recent times, it's been male only. And that is the law right now. It's the imperial the, the imperial household law of 1947. So they would have to change it. But the interesting thing is that you've got a new emperor and empress. And these are very much of the time. So Narahito really had to fight to win the hand of his wife. Um, Princess Masako, because she was a diplomat. She was a high flyer, multilingual, edu- very well educated. Um, and she knew the strictures that were going to come with imperial mm-hmm. life. And so he had to propose three times before she would agree. And he always promised to defend her. And he really has. And she's had a very hard time. Um, she's been away from the public eye for, for more than a decade, um, with an adjustment or disorder, stress and anxiety from the pressures that were put on her to have a son, and of course she didn't; she had a daughter. Um, and only recently has she been really coming back more and more into the into the public. And he is very much a relaxed man. Now, Akihito was a revelation because here was a man who he and his wife, um, Empress Michiko, went out to the went out into the public. They Talk to people face to face, eye to eye. They made that contact that had never happened before in Japan, um, because of course his father Hirohito was worshipped as a god. Right. And so, and he really, and after the the tsunami and the disasters that happened um, early, you know, about a decade ago, he was out there with his wife with the whole family, um, in a way that they hadn't really seen before. And so he's really opened up the monarchy, and I think. Naruhito and Masako will continue it. I mean, Naruhito did—you know—has taken selfies with people, which, you know, for a very staid, very scripted royal family, um, is revolutionary. I mean, it's, we think of it as ordinary, yeah, but not in Japan.
0: So they really haven't had their, um, I guess, Princess Diana moment, right? They haven't had that person they, yet who changes everything. No.
3: Well, I mean, Masako they thought would be, but then you know she's obviously had issues, and 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 the change right now is only the start of it because there's a whole series of events even leading up to the abdication today mm. and the abdication today and the installation of narahito tomorrow because the the really elaborate enthronement ceremony is actually going to take place in october and that's when royalty from around the world is expected to come and so we'll see what the transformation is whatever it is though it will be very incremental very measured very, um, everything very carefully analyzed um, because the imperial royal household, the imperial household really does control things. Um, well, in, just,
0: I in, noticed. I noticed in, in the article that you had written too, the column that you wrote about this. This is the, even this handover. It's like what a ten day holiday and for the entire country. And there's all sorts of oh, yes. computer updates and all these yeah. other things that have to happen.
3: <laughs> well. In the, I mean, this is, is, is a very big thing because it's simply never happened before. So what they've done is they've... Yeah, the whole country is, is off for 10 days. So they've combined a few. There were some natural holidays that happened at this time. So they kind of combined everything together and said to everyone, go have a holiday. Um, but the interesting thing is that um, in Japan, they really do follow the, um, the royal calendar. So this is the last day of Akihito's era, which is called Heisei. And tomorrow is the start of Narahito's era, which is called Riwa. And so this will be Riwa 1, so the year one of the, of his reign. And so all the computers have to change. Every date has to change. Um, they use mm-hmm. the Western calendar as well, but literally, I mean, Microsoft is pushing a speci- has pushed a special update. They have people on standby because it's like Y2K is happening, um, and they're going to assume that there are going to be problems. And so... There is this whole sense of, of a transition, of a moment in time. And I, the question is going to be, will Naruhito and Masako be able to, to capitalize on that? And that will be the interesting thing to see in, in the months and the years to come.
0: This is so interesting. Patricia, thank you for explaining it to us today. You're more than welcome. That's Patricia Treble. She's been a royal watcher, writes for Maclean's and other magazines and organizations. Let's talk about what's been happening in Surrey. And once again, they are seeing some more violence on their streets that is causing a lot of concern. In particular, there's a Surrey city councillor who said he's having trouble sleeping because of what has been going on. We're going to talk more about this now with the help of Global News senior reporter Janet Brown. Hi, Janet.
6: Good afternoon, Simmy. That's right. The councillor you're referring to is Councillor Doug Elford. Uh, talking to him at City Council last night, he said he is having trouble sleeping these last couple of weeks because of all the violence taking part in the city. And the mayor said the very same thing, Simi, back on April the 5th. So now we have Mr. Elford and the mayor both saying they're having trouble sleeping because of the violence taking place in Surrey. Right. Well, the question is to them, well, you know, what what are you folks going to do about this? What are you doing about it? And they both say, well, we are doing something about it. We are moving to a new municipal police force. And they both feel that things will change and will improve under a new civic police force versus the RCMP. Here is more of what Councillor Doug Elford had to tell me last night.
7: Well, it's it's concerning to city council that we we're continuing to see this uh, type of uh, violence on us in the streets of Surrey and and really we're we're all uh, of the same thought that it it it's uh, we're, we're having trouble sleeping at night thinking about this and we're uh, looking forward to um, um, working to make Surrey a more safe livable community
6: do you think things will change once we get a municipal force
7: I'm hoping so because uh, the status quo right now doesn't seem to be to be working, and and the community is telling us this right now.
6: You've had a couple of incidents near your house as well.
7: Well, I've had more than a couple of incidents near my house over the last few years, and it's really concerning to me and my neighbors when they look to me and say we we have to we have to make improvements in our community. We have to things have to be better because we can't accept uh, bullets shells bouncing off the streets in our neighborhoods.
6: Um, with a new police force, do you think? numbers will be added to the to the rank and file doug
7: i'm not at this particular time i'm not really sure it'll be up to the uh, the organization the police board uh, and uh, how they establish the uh, levels of policing in the street
6: do you feel more officers would help what's going on right now
7: um, it, that's really hard to say right now. I think it, it may be a matter of how they're deployed. It's really up to the experts. I'm, I'm not an expert in the field. I, I know I've called for more boots on the ground in the past and, and, uh, and that could be more visibility. But certainly, yes, um, that's something that uh, we would be addressing with the police.
0: You know, Janet, that is so interesting because he's not committing to actually having more officers. So what exactly does he think? Like, where is this miraculous change going to come from?
6: Absolutely, Simi, and he is the man for many, many years, as you know and our listeners know, he is the guy yeah. that would always call for more police officers, more boots on the ground, anytime there was an incident anywhere in Surrey, but particularly where he is from in the community of Newton. So now he's really not committing to more police officers, even with a, a civic police force, if that indeed is what Surrey may end up with, which is rather interesting. He's trying to put it off to you know that will be the decision of the new police chief of the new uh, police board. So I find that super interesting because a lot of people in Surrey say that they feel anyways, that if there were more boots on the ground, more police officers, yeah. that we wouldn't see this level of violence taking place in the city. Um I also talked to Mayor Doug McCallum last night, Simi, uh, for his thoughts on this as well, the, the recent violence. We had a murder uh, Friday in the Fraser Heights neighborhood. Then I'm sure a lot of people saw that crazy video yeah. over the weekend in Newton, that mayhem involving you know bodies and vehicles, etc. And uh, I, I put it to the mayor. What are his thoughts on what's happening? And here's what he had to say.
4: I'm frustrated with what's been going on in our communities, um, and I feel sorry for the people in our communities that have to put up with this type of uh, criminal activity. Uh, And, you know, we deserve better in our communities. Uh, We need a lot safer communities.
6: Will it be different with a municipal force?
4: Well, we're working towards it. I think our communities want to see um, a lot more local control so that we can deal with it. Um, And so I I think um, certainly as we head towards our, our own Surrey police, then it will um, give us a lot more local control where we can hopefully um, make our communities um, feel a lot um, safer.
0: All right, that's interesting as well then, Janet. So what about the local control does he think is going to change things and where are we at with this report?
6: Uh, The report, according to the lone opposition councillor in Surrey, Linda Annis, was supposed to be going from the city of Surrey to the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth, today. Uh, But that has been pushed back. Mayor McCallum says it's now still getting the finishing touches, dotting the I's, crossing the T's. He says it should be on the desk of the Solicitor General in the next week to 10 days. And the mayor has promised councillors will get a look at that report uh, at at about the same time Mr. Farnworth gets it. And he's also promised the public will eventually get a look at it as well around the same time Mr. Farnworth gets it. So, you know, it's going to be really interesting in in these coming weeks, Simi, to see exactly what that report says. Um, And also, bottom line, how much is it going to cost the average taxpayers in the city of Surrey? Because that's another big question everybody's asking.
0: Yeah, I'm just so curious as to how the Mayor thinks that just by having local control, there's some magical decision that can be made that is going to fix this problem.
6: Well, to answer that as best I can, Simi, uh, and to quote the mayor and and others on council, that they feel that they will be able to have some input in terms of deployment, where the resources go in the city. Uh, if there seems to be a concentrated area, for instance, in Newton. Um, that they could direct the police chief or have some input to the police chief to say, hey, you know what, I think we should add more officers, take a look at what's going on down there. A little bit more input uh, than they have right now. And, And in fact, I'm not even sure if they have much input right now. There is a lot of communication that goes on, of course, between the mayor, council, and the officer in charge of Surrey RCMP, Dwayne McDonald. But in terms of council trying to tell Mr. McDonald, for instance, you know, you should be doing this or this or this, or this is what we think, there's not a lot of that going on. So that's what the mayor means by, um, you know, a different deployment, that sort of thing. More input, he feels, will result with a civic force. So interesting. All right, Janet, thank you. You're welcome, Cynthia. that is Global
0: News senior reporter Janet Brown reporting from Surrey about the latest developments there. Well, BC's Labour Code is undergoing some changes, and that actually hasn't happened in decades. So what's being changed? What does it mean for you? That's what we're going to find out right now with the help of Harry Baines, BC's Labour Minister. Thank you so much for joining us.
5: Uh, thank you for having me.
0: So what kind of changes are we talking about? What's happening?
5: Uh, Simi, like, like you said, uh, the labor code last uh, was, uh, what has seen its uh, uh, comp- you know, the, the review was 1992. Uh, that is 27 years ago, quarter century ago. And uh, you know what? Uh, to put things in, con- in context, uh, Google wasn't even introduced at that time. <laughs> uh, so a lot have changed as work- at workplaces. The needs of the workers and the employers uh, have changed. Uh, but the, our labor laws haven't kept up pace with it. So what we are trying to do is modernize our labor laws, uh, so that they reflect the needs of uh, today's economy, reflect the needs uh, of uh, uh, workers and, uh, and 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 um, and, and employers, uh, so that uh, uh, you know they would have a labor code, a supporting uh, labor board, uh, where they would have a. Uh, objective and fair-minded people to deal with their issues to ha- to to continue to strive towards a harmonious and uh, balanced labor relations at uh, to unionized workplaces.
0: So, what is going to change then? Like, what would workers notice?
5: So, first thing they will see is the success- successorship rights. Um, uh, when you see contract flipping uh, in many of the healthcare sectors, in janitorial services, uh, in food services. A uh, new uh, service pr- provider comes in and uh, the, the workers who have been unionized in that particular or- or operation have a collective agreement in place. They lose all those rights. They lose the rights to the collective agreement and bargaining. New contractor comes in. And these employees, uh, many times, are not even rehired or reapply for the same job, providing the same service at the same place using the same equipment. So they would uh, see that their rights will be protected through successorship rights. And the other one would be the union certification process. Uh, how uh, workers, uh, uh, you know, unionize themselves if they choose to. Um, I think we, I recognize, our government recognize, I think uh, it's recognized in the law that every worker in this country has constitutional right uh, to association and join a union of their choice. Uh, What we've seen in the last 15 years, those rights were eroded. Uh, They were intimidated, there were uh, cases of uh, harassment, threats, uh, and uh, anti-union animus was, was found in many cases. And, and the workers basically were left out uh, without uh, expressing their wishes truly. So we're going to strengthen that area. Uh, now we will continue to have the two steps, where they sign union uh, certification card. At the same time, they will be required to go through the secret ballot. Uh, and uh, but we are cutting uh, time from ten days to five days when that vote within that within time when the vote must take place to cut the time for, uh, for anyone to intimidate, a course, or interfere in that union uh, certification process. And if they are found to uh, break the law, then uh, the Labour Nation will have discretion to uh, um, issue certification uh, if they found that the employer has, uh, has interfered in, in their right, right. to organize.
0: Uh, what about and age of workers as well? I understand that was going to be an issue.
5: The age of worker that was yesterday I mean that was under the Employment Standards Act. Okay. Uh, we are raising uh, children's age from twelve to sixteen years in order to work uh, in a dangerous and hazardous work to me uh, you will be s- surprised and shocked in my view. Uh, we are the only only jurisdiction in North America where children as young as twelve are are allowed to work in dangerous and hazardous workplaces such as mining forestry, and in construction. And we were cited by the international labor organizations, United Nations, and other jurisdictions uh, that uh, we are risking children's uh, health and safety. And uh, WCB record uh, and data clearly support that. They paid $5 million uh, in, uh, in injury claims to, uh, to children under 15 last five years. So they are, we are putting their lives in danger, and we are going to eliminate that. But uh, having said that, 14- and 15 year old can continue to work in light work, which will be uh, defined in the regulations going forward, and what is the dangerous work and what is the light work where they are able to work. For example, they could uh, help parents in, in their grocery store uh, stocking shelves or work in, a, in their uh, you know, parents' farm uh, you know, along with them. Those are the type of things that we will be defining in the legislation, uh, regulations, and, uh, and uh, so they will continue to work in certain those areas.
0: Right. So then when do the, all these new changes come into effect?
5: So the changes that we are recommending today, they are effective today. And uh, what we recommended yesterday in the employment standard changes, uh, we will be uh, d- devising uh, regulations that will take some time, and uh, when we receive the royal assent, the regulations in place, and then they will be applied at that time.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on this.
5: Simi, thank you for having me.
0: That is Harry Baines, the Labour Minister for the NDP government, talking about changes that they have made or in the process of making for labour standards in this province, the Employment Standards Act, uh, the Labour Code as well. Well, oh, what a difference a couple of weeks makes, right? And going from opposition to being in charge. Today was the big day. Jason Kenney was sworn in today as the new Premier of Alberta just a couple of hours ago. And we wanted to think back here, take a moment, think back of the what the campaign trail was like. It was a nasty campaign. We covered quite a bit of it. But remember what he pledged to voters just a few weeks ago when he was campaigning? Oh, something about, oh, I know, turning off the taps to British Columbia.
2: Within an hour of being sworn in, we will hold a cabinet meeting. And the first item on the agenda will be to proclaim into law Bill 12 the turn off the tax legislation.
0: Right. Well, he got part of it right. Within the first hour, they did have a cabinet meeting, but the rest of that did not happen this morning uh, while being sworn in to offices, Alberta's 18th premier. He now says, oh, he had no intention to do that.
2: Clear. It is not our intention. Uh, to uh, reduce shipments or turn off the tap at this time. We simply want to demonstrate uh, that uh, our government is serious about defending the vital economic interests of Alberta.
0: Funny, because it sure sounded like that was his intention, right? So now what happens in this relationship between our two provinces? Well, we thought we'd check in with our good friends over at 630 Chet in Edmonton. And Ryan Jesperson joins us now. Hi, Ryan.
2: Hey Simi, how are you?
0: I am good, thank you. We're recovering. We thought we were gonna be getting it today. We thought we'd be the target and turns out not so much.
2: Well, I mean from what I understand it from photos that I've seen posted of, of gas prices, you guys are already getting it. I yeah, think what you're are. flirting flirting with a dollar eighty a liter for regular right now, is that right?
0: It is, but it depends on every day. Today's a dollar seventy two, but you know what? It goes up and down all week long.
2: It's, uh, it's wild. And then I think of all the, I mean, all of those, uh, you know, on, on the West coast, lucky enough to be driving Ferraris, Maseratis, and Mercedes that are filling up with the 91 and the 94 octane. And you've got yeah. to be over $2 a liter, which is, uh, absolutely wild. I was, I was just, spending some time with my brother and sister who both call vancouver home uh they were back home in alberta for a recent family gathering and and uh i was complaining about a dollar 45 a liter and, and and
0: they were staring daggers at me <laughs> yeah that is what we would pretty much do to people who say that but i guess we were still expecting because jason kenny was so adamant about this on the campaign trail so ryan what happened
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, this is this is everything that's wrong about politics as far as I'm concerned. And I'm certainly not suggesting uh, that I that I want uh, our new premier here in Alberta to immediately pick a fight with our neighbors in in British Columbia. Um, I mean, essentially, depending on, on, on who you blame, uh, you know, the premier of, of Alberta now or of Quebec, he he sort of soft picked a fight the night of April 16th and then Quebec fired back the morning of April 17th. So we've already got that, uh, you know, uh, conversation going around the, the ethics of pipeline expansion out to eastern Canada and maybe the lack of, of so-called social license, if that's even a thing anymore. Uh, but you're right. I mean, you know, Jason Kenney essentially today said, um, you know, what he did say is we have no intention of yada, 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 but what he meant was we have no intention of keeping our promise yeah. to, the, to the people of Alberta, which was to immediately uh, proclaim into law uh, the NDP bill, Bill 12, which which is the turn-off-the-taps legislation that Rachel Notley was... Was holding over Premier Horgan's head uh, as they attempted their their you know pipelines and grapevines uh, conversation. Um, it, it to me, it, there's a lot of saber rattling from all politicians on the campaign trail, but none of it is proven to be meaningless as quickly as what we heard from Jason Kenny today. I, I suppose British Columbians are probably breathing a sigh of relief, but it made me roll my eyes the entire time.
0: I got to tell you, like even here when he was saying it, I don't think many of us. Actually believed it was going to happen because it was. It did sound like you know being on the campaign trail and and all that hyperbole that they use. But I got to say, if, if you're at one of those rallies and you heard Jason Kenney say that, how would how are people feeling about that? Saying, well, wait a minute, I thought you said you were going to do this.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are a lot of things that that uh, you know we have. This is day one of this new government. You know a talk of streamlining and, and government and making government smaller, and he introduces a cabinet larger than the NDP's. Now, big deal. I mean, it's it's two seats larger, right? And, uh, Nineteen ministers, three associate ministers introduced today, whereas the NDP left with twenty. So it's only two more. Keep in mind, the NDP's first cabinet four years ago was twelve ministers, which is minuscule uh, for a province even like Alberta. Uh, but but you know the the, the promises are going to get interesting. Um, you know, people, I suggested on Charles Adler a couple of weeks ago, and caught a lot of flack from conservatives in Alberta for it. But I stand by my comments that I think that Jason Kenney is beholden to some special interest groups, including the so-called parents' rights groups, homeschoolers, and parents that were dealt a, a blow in Alberta's highest court, Alberta's Court of Appeal, today. Fighting Bill 24, which is the NDP's Act, uh, the School Act, which prohibits uh, schools, uh, most especially faith-based schools and private schools, from notifying parents when their children are taking part in a gay-straight alliance in the GSA. Uh, so today their Delta setback in court, uh, represented by notorious lawyer John Carpe of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. And so the news reports say, well, now these groups are going to look to Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney to see what he's going to do in keeping his promise to them that he will that he will roll yeah. back Bill 24 protections. So we're already seeing a couple interesting storylines, Simeon. They've only been government for three hours. Yeah.
0: yeah, that's a very good way to put it then. Is that going to matter, though, Ryan? Because it seemed to be- me in the election campaign, a lot of that other stuff just didn't, it, when it came down to it, didn't matter. And people voted UCP anyway
2: it didn't none of this nothing mattered it it didn't matter that that Rachel Notley had had called out John Horgan and had called out uh Quebec's leadership and had called out Prime Minister Justin Trudeau it didn't matter that Rachel Notley a long time new democrat was cheerleading for pipelines which was bizarre for long time new democrats to see uh it didn't matter that many of Jason Kenney's candidates were being uh, you know dragged through uh essentially the muck and mire of their own self-creation with regards to you know homosexuality and Islamophobic and white nationalist social media posts. None of it mattered, Simi. What people wanted was the New Democrats out and the Conservatives in. And uh, I was even seeing feedback like that on our text line and on Twitter this morning when I was doing my show. Uh, People just saying we've waited four long years to see Conservatives back in power in Alberta. It was a 44-year tenure before that with the Progressive Conservatives. And before that, it was the Social Credit Party, which is under Bible Bill Aberhart, even more conservative. So this is a province that was not used to a centrist government like Rachel Notley's NDP. And now for a lot of people, more than a million of them voted for Jason Kenney. The first time we've ever seen a party get a million votes in Alberta, they're happy to see a conservative government back in, regardless of whether or not they're going to get their promises kept.
0: Right. But how long do you think that lasts? Like, obviously, there's a lot of pressure here on Jason Kenney as well, because, as you mentioned before, it was always a foregone conclusion of which party was going to be elected. Now we know there are other possibilities.
2: Yeah, but I mean, here's the thing is one of the beautiful things, if you're the United Conservatives, one of the beautiful things about unity is you have lopped off at the knees any other effective conservative alternative Uh, for a lot of years. Well, at least, let's say, for 10 years in the province of Alberta, while the progressive conservatives held power, the Wild Rose Party presented a very real alternative. I mean, they were getting hundreds of thousands of votes in elections. They were strong. And if not for their own self-implosion, the Wild Rose Party very likely could have formed government had Daniel Smith not crossed the floor uh in in uh late 2014 in december 2014 before that had a candidate by the name of alan Huntsberger not gone on a lake of fire rant about about gays uh in 2012 so uh with that option gone with the wild roast party no longer a factor right now the alberta party has zero seats they had three heading into the election the alberta liberals have zero seats It had one heading into the election and the Freedom Conservative Party, which just lost its leader this morning. Derek Fildebrandt has zero seats and they had one before that as well. So Alberta is for the first time in a long time, a two party democracy and conservatives, whether or not they're keeping their promises, simply look to the electorate, their base and say, you want them or us?
0: Easy way to put it. Listen, uh, Ryan, thanks so much for explaining it to us.
2: Always appreciate the opportunity, Simmy.
0: Love having you on. That is Ryan Jesperson, host of the Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chet in Edmonton.